welcome to the podcast, The Common Bridge with Richard Helpy. Rich is a successful entrepreneur in the technology, health, and finance space. He and his wife, Leslie, are also philanthropists with interest in civic and artistic endeavors, but with a primary focus on medically and educationally underserved children. My name is Brian Kruger, and from time to time, I'll be the moderator and host of this podcast. And welcome back to The Common Bridge. This is part two of Rich Helpy's interview with Barb McQuaid. Um, if you missed the first part of that, it was episode 45, and this is a conclusion of that two-part um, uh, episode. So we join Rich and Barbara McQuaid in conversation. Uh, but Barbara, I hope we can take a little bit of time the, um, on a different topic. We've seen the tragic death of George Floyd while in police custody. Um, it's terrible. Um, when you look at this from a legal lens, what do you see out there? Like if you were going to, I don't know, count crimes and, and such, and there might be a really long list, but I'd sure love to hear what you think about when you look at everything that's occurred from the officer's interaction to the uh, things that are happening in our um, cities and towns right now. Well, first, uh, the tragedy of the death of George Floyd, completely unnecessary um, and I, I think has rightfully angered many people in this country. People are feeling a lot of pain and anger. Um, and I, I think that it, uh, it demonstrates how this age of uh, video and cell phones that has captured this reality that has existed for generations is finally, I think, uh, waking people up about needs for reforms in police departments. Um, I, I think seeing um, the officer with his knee on the neck of George Floyd as uh, the life is literally squeezed out of him is so deeply disturbing. It seems so callous. Um, you know, oftentimes police and citizen encounters uh, happen quickly. Officers uh, make split second decisions. And while in retrospect, you can second guess and say they made the wrong one, they were acting under the heat of the moment and doing what they thought was necessary. Uh, this one just doesn't have that feel whatsoever. You know, there are a number of factors that jurors look at like that, like the need to make split second decisions of life and death. Um, this one is so deliberate and lasts for almost nine minutes that uh, I don't see you can, how anyone can see anything other than callous disregard for life. And so uh, I think he and his fellow officers have properly been charged there. But it also is a microcosm of a larger problem in society. You know, we have police officers. We need police officers. I know many, many really fine people who are police officers who work very hard and risk their lives every day to protect the rest of us and be safe. And when they see an officer like this, they get offended because it tarnishes the badge they wear as well, because it makes, um, you know, people assume the worst about all of our police officers. But um, no doubt we need reform in a number of police departments. Um, training is one, but we went through an extensive consent decree with the Detroit Police Department during the time I was U.S. attorney. And one of the things I saw is that while training is important, it's not the only thing. Um, there needs to be policies about what is and is not permissible techniques. I mean, putting a knee on someone's neck should never be a permissible technique. It leads to something that is uh, known as positional asphyxiation, where a person on their stomach, when they have pressure applied to their neck, there's a very high risk of death. Um, in addition to training and policies, there also needs to be accountability by management. And that means that officers are uh, subject to 
uh, escalating levels of discipline up to termination. So often you see in these departments that people commit an act of misconduct, uh, they appeal to some sort of uh, civilian review board, uh, their union goes to bat for them, and they're reinstated with back pay and maybe transferred to a different division, or they get fired from one department and hired by another. I think we need to do a better job of providing accountability for officers who break the rules. If we mean it, um, we need to um, instill the culture in police departments that they are not warriors, but guardians. Well, that's uh, something that I've long puzzled over, that it's the design of the job as the, of the police officer in that, you know, in a, any given shift, they might be a marriage counselor, a neighbor mediator, a first responder to an accident, you know, a, an ordinance enforcement. And yet at any second, you've got to go into full warrior mode and, and be prepared for a violent confrontation. It, it when you look at that job description, it, it almost defies the imagination that it could be carried out. Um, and, and I agree that the uh, absolute accountability, it's got to start in the locales. Um, I, I think that we're very fortunate in our major city in Detroit. I, I think from what I can tell that Chief James Craig is uh, quite the leader. And mm-hmm. in, in recent weeks, there was uh, some knucklehead doing donuts on the Lodge Freeway. They closed it down and <laughs> Chief said, we're going to find you. And a day later, it's like, we know who you are. You can turn yourself in. And they ended up, they arrested a, uh, some guy from down river and, uh, and brought him to justice. Any nuance in the law? And if I, I, I read something you wrote about the violation of constitutional rights and that my lay interpretation of this, and forgive me, is that the violation of someone's constitutional rights to make it a crime has to be willful versus something like knowing or reckless. I, it sounded like it made a lot of sense to me. Could you help our listeners maybe understand that? Yeah, I'm referring to the federal civil rights statute. So the officers involved in George Floyd's death have been charged under state law with various homicide offenses. I think we're now at second degree murder for Officer Chauvin and third degree murder for the other officers. And that's a matter of state statute. Um, they'll be entitled to a defense of uh, public authority defense that they were uh, only applying what they thought was reasonable force as necessary under the circumstances to protect their own lives or the lives of others. And that will look at questions like the severity of the crime, whether he was resisting or evading arrest, um, and those types of things. All of that has to be proven to make out a federal civil rights violation. And typically what will happen is the feds will investigate, wait and see whether justice is achieved in the state system. And if they believe that some substantial federal interest has not been fulfilled, will then file civil rights charges. It happened with the Rodney King case when the officers there Mm -hmm. were acquitted. They came in and and filed charges subsequently. So um, they'll wait and see what happens. But if they are either acquitted or uh, they're not satisfied with the sentence, perhaps they can come in and file uh, civil rights charges. And so it would require all those elements we just discussed about the reasonableness of the officer's actions. But then it requires this much higher standard of a willful violation of someone's constitutional rights. And it's a very high standard. The prosecutor has to show that the officer had a specific intent to do precisely what the law forbids, not just a bad purpose. And so the instructions make it almost impossible to ever get a conviction under that statute. The jury would be instructed uh, that it's not enough 
that an officer's force was excessive or unjustified or that he intended to harm or to frighten the suspect. Uh, it's not enough to show that he acted, uh, that the death was accidental or negligent or reckless. Uh, it's not enough to show that the death was a mistake or that the officer panicked or used bad judgment or that he had bad training. What you have to show is that the officer knew what he was doing was illegal and he chose to do it anyway. I mean, it really almost amounts to a uh, you know first degree murder charge. And so um, I, I would submit that they, there ought to be some consideration of uh, modifying that willfulness to uh, a word like knowing or even reckless. Um, it is easier to prove, and it, it would be still an element that would have to be proven. Uh, you couldn't um, charge someone who just made a mistake or negligence would not be enough. But a, 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 an intent that is not quite so specific as to render it impossible to be proved. Um, we don't want uh, police officers to be charged with crimes every time they make a mistake. I mean, occasionally they are going to uh, overreact under uh, circumstances and cause someone's death. We don't want to transform every one of those mistakes into a crime. But um, I think that we need to do more to hold officers accountable when they do act to knowingly or recklessly violate uh, someone's constitutional rights. And that sounds like a great policy change, I think, that would make everyone comfortable if you were a victim of a misconduct on, at the hands of the police, of you know, law, any type of law enforcement. And, and I know I've chatted with law enforcement officers and I've said, look, what if every time there's a, a death or a shooting involving the police that instead of it being investigated locally, it immediately moves to a federal level so there can't be any, you know, knowledge of the people involved. It's more what happened here, you know, was the citizen treated fairly and within the law and remove it from the jurisdiction. I've gotten uh, some officers that have said, you know, that's a great idea. And I've got others that, you know, vigorously opposed that. Um, Barb, I'm just wondering from you, before we jump into this, what I like to call the lightning round is that as you're teaching young lawyers, and this is a seminal event today in the the horrible killing of George Floyd and the now civil unrest, what are you talking to them about, about where they can make the most meaningful contribution to the society? You know, do we start at the back end result of the uh, property destruction and, and things that are going on, or do you move upstream to police training? When you're sitting there with the young lawyers, I'd be fascinated to understand where they're focused and, and where you might be leading them. Well, uh, one of the things we talk about is the ability to jump in at all of those different points. I mean, many people want to be on the ground at a micro level working as either prosecutors or defense attorneys handling individual cases and having good lawyers uh, being able to represent parties in cases really makes for a better system of justice and better outcomes in cases. So we need people to be able to do that. But we also need people working at the policy end uh, to decide and examine our laws and look at, are there better ways to be doing some of the things that we're doing? Um, you know, with regard to police reform, for example, there are a lot of good thoughts that are going around now that uh, need to be implemented, but you need good people 
uh, to focus on this. And, and one of the things that's really important that we focus on in law school, I think, is that the details matter. So often today, I think, in our world of social media and cable news, um, we see images and headlines, and we have an emotional reaction, and we want to um, see one side or another be favored, uh, which is a very natural reaction. But uh, it's really important to drill deeper into the nuance of things to decide how to make that happen, because um, you can't paint with broad strokes when it comes to the law. As I just mentioned with regard to uh, the civil rights statute, um, you know you have to be able to prove willfulness versus knowing versus reckless versus negligent. Each of those words means something. And depending on how you write a statute or a policy, whichever of those words you use can have a tremendous difference in the outcome. And so helping lawyers understand those nuances so that they can be uh, meaningful uh, change agents when it comes to these things is part of our educational mission. Well, I have full confidence in you and the University of Michigan. Let's go through a little bit of lightning round before we wrap up. And any of these questions you want to pass on or say, hey, that's can't really do it in a lightning round, I understand. But, but I, I have a person of your stature here today, so I'm going to ask. In recent weeks, we saw protesters on the grounds and in Michigan's capital bringing weapons. And I've commented on the stupidity of that based on, A, who are you going to shoot? B, how are you going to get a safe shot off? C, why would you make yourself a target? D, do you know the state police have sharpshooters that could pick out exactly which hair on your head they want to hit from 300 yards away? But presuming that we can't outlaw stupidity, you know, through the eyes of a prosecutor, it, when you look at those scenes of gun-wielding people on the Capitol lawn and inside the Capitol, are there any laws that are broken there or should there be? Well, first, I think um, when they just show up with a gun under our state laws, we, uh, we permit guns except for places they're prohibited and they're not currently prohibited at our state Capitol. Now, when they go up into the the gallery and look down at lawmakers who are doing their jobs and, and brandish their guns, I think one could make an argument that that uh, meets the elements of felonious assault, which does not require any striking or putting of hands on someone, but it is simply putting someone in reasonable fear of serious bodily injury. And I think when someone brandishes a gun, um, there is a strong argument for that. Um, I think we should prohibit guns from our state capitol. Um, some will say, well, that's a violation of my Second Amendment rights. But um, even Justice Scalia, who was a staunch advocate of the Second Amendment, uh, wrote that we can um, put reasonable restrictions on Second Amendment rights, including prohibiting guns from places uh, that are sensitive. Sally Yates, James Clapper, Susan Rice, Evelyn Farkas, Jim Comey, we now know they testified under oath eight ways to Sunday. They saw no collusion, heard of none, didn't hear of any. Yet we have an elected representative on television repeatedly saying he had seen things that right now looks like it doesn't exist. Um, I asked this question of another assistant U.S. prosecutor. It says no crime as long as you're not lying under oath. Um, should it be a crime? Reporting you've seen something in confidence as a elected member of the United States government and you're misrepresenting it that could inflame people. Well, I guess I, I, I want to clarify what we're talking about here, because I think what Sally Yates and others said is that they did not see evidence of collusion. And oftentimes, number one, people who are prosecutors are not witnesses, so they don't see things happen in real time. Um, and the other is, how are we defining collusion? Uh, you know, President Trump is fond of saying that um, Robert Mueller found no collusion. I would say he did find collusion. What he said is, I cannot conclude that um, this amounts to the legal definition of conspiracy. 
but he found things like Paul Manafort sharing polling data with Russia. Is that collusion? He concluded that the Trump campaign uh, knew about, welcomed, and benefited from Russia's interference. Is that collusion? So I don't know specifically what the statements were, but I think um, different people can have different interpretations about what is meant by the word collusion. Now, if, as you say, a member of Congress made a blatantly false statement about uh, the president, is that a crime? I don't know that it's a crime. I think um, typically public statements that are false are not criminal, but like all members of society, uh, members of Congress are subject to defamation law. And so if uh, they were to defame the president by saying things that were blatantly false, they would have the ability to, uh, the, the uh, subject of those statements, the president or whoever it is, would have the ability to file defamation lawsuits the same way everyone else does. That makes sense to me. Um, and, and kind of you mentioned Roger Stone, and i understanding that he relayed data or was ready to relay data that he knew was going to be stolen. I don't know if he, he was convicted of that or if that's, if that's the entire uh, rap sheet on him. And if is there more coming on him? And it must be something serious that, you know, it took 24-member SWAT team and an armored vehicle and a helicopter to, to bring him in. But what's his role in all this stuff? He was convicted of lying to Congress and of tampering with a witness by threatening to kill him if he testified before Congress. Um, in the Mueller report, we see um, that he appears to be an intermediary between WikiLeaks and the Trump campaign. There are statements that are still redacted in that report that is the subject of another lawsuit to get the disclosure of the full report, including the parts that have been previously redacted, that suggests that Roger Stone was communicating with WikiLeaks about uh, coordinating the release of those messages. There's one part that says that the Trump campaign deliberately uh, corresponded with emails they knew that were about to be released to attack Hillary Clinton's health, that she was weak and not in good health and had poor energy. You may recall that right around uh, 9-11 of 2016, um, and were pushing that theory uh, in, to coordinate with the messaging that they knew was going to be released released through WikiLeaks, which included emails stolen by Russians. And so um, I don't know if there is more to be charged against Roger Stone as a result of that. Um, but one of the things that Robert Mueller concluded in his report is that because people lied to him, because people uh, prevented others from testifying truthfully, like Roger Stone, because people told only part of the story and not everything, because people used encrypted apps, they were not able to find every fact, uh, and if they had, might have led to other conclusions. Right. I remember uh, one of the things they caught Paul Manafort on was using like a draft email that someone else had the credentials to sign on, and they never actually sent anything, but you, they they knew where to find it, which apparently is not a new trick, and the FBI was on to that pretty darn quick. Um, Barb, this has been really, really great, and... Uh, just if, if you don't mind riffing, I'm going to toss out a number of things here. Should our country expect that we're going to have uh, criminal charges against our president? Or is this more the people around him? Are our political parties the answer or are they part of the problem? I mean, we're horribly divided right now. Um, the reporting outlets, are they responsible for adding fuel to the flames? You know, I had Mort Krim on here 
don't know, several weeks ago, and he was very articulate about the editing process uh, that's left out. And one of the things that we're trying to do on the common bridge is get to some objectivity. And, you know, a person's opinion is often based on what their political view is. And it's, you know, seemingly the same behavior, whether it's good behavior, bad behavior, it's an opinion is rendered not by what's being done, but by who's doing it. So there's a lot in there, but I'm, I know I'm, I'm over time here. And I, I just wanted to uh, see if you if you care to comment on any of that. And if not, um, we, we can move to a wrap up. Well, I think um, whether the president will be charged with any crimes, I think that depends on what the facts show. I suppose an argument could be made that the president could be charged with a crime for obstruction of justice. I do believe that the Mueller report does uh, make the case that the president engaged in obstruction of justice and that the only reason that charges were not recommended is because it is against the policy of the Department of Justice to charge a sitting president. And so uh, if he finds himself out of office in January of 2021, the statute of limitations will not have run on um, that conduct. And so I think he could be charged. Now, a really important question that prosecutors ask themselves first is, can a crime be charged? Uh, can it? Is there probable cause that a crime has been committed? And do I have sufficient evidence to obtain and sustain a conviction at trial? That's number one. That's usually the easy part. The hard part is, should I charge this crime? And when it comes to charging a president who's out of office uh, and the political fallout that comes with that, I think that whoever is um, in the position to make that decision has to make it very carefully. On the one hand, you want to make sure people are held accountable for their misconduct. Uh, on the other, I think you have to think about the political consequences of such a decision. And so uh, whoever is our next attorney general will have some very important evidence to review and some very important decisions to make. Bart, what did we not cover today, but perhaps should be discussed? What should people be aware of? I guess one thing I would um, mention is some um, ideas about reforming police departments. Um, you know, in 2015, in the wake of some of these police shootings, uh, Trayvon Martin, uh, Michael Brown, President Obama convened a task force on 21st century policing, and he brought together police uh, chiefs and community members and academics to study and recommend best practices. And they put together a really tremendous report. Um, in fact, the uh, chair of that group, the chief of staff, was a woman who's now in Detroit, Malenka Clark, who is now the executive director of the Hudson Weber Foundation. But it has a lot of really concrete recommendations. And I would love to see some life breathed into that document uh, for mayors and, and police chiefs to take that document and work toward uh, achieving some of the goals there. I mean, one of the things it talks about is collecting data of uh, police shootings and deaths in police custody. We hear about the high profile ones. Um, how, how prevalent is this problem? What is the race of the people involved? Is it as big a problem as we think, or do we only react emotionally to the videos that we see? Let's see the data, because only until we understand the problem can we diagnose the solution. Um, using um, use of force policies that emphasize de-escalation uh, and making that um, a, a real priority. Um, training on things like implicit bias and cultural diversity and understanding mental health issues with uh, suspects that they're dealing with. And a really important one that I think does not get discussed enough is officer wellness and counseling for officers. There's a former Michigan State Police captain who's retired and does work on this named Harold Love in, in Michigan, 
focused in Detroit, um, and, and tells his own story about um, being involved in trauma of being the first to arrive at an accident scene and seeing a young person die, being involved in a police chase where a child was injured, and the, the trauma that that inflicts on a police officer, um, helping them deal with those kinds of things so that they don't take out that anger on the next citizen that they encounter. And so some really specific recommendations in that report. Um, you could put a link to that up on your website. Uh, I can provide it to you. It's the uh, uh, Task Force on 21st Century Policing uh, Report and Recommendation and some really great recommendations that I would love to see embraced by police departments across the country. Yeah, any links that you could recommend on any of the topics that we've covered or um, any, you know, particularly policy initiatives and any policies that uh, beyond what you've mentioned that might be the best policy approach or approaches to make sure the law works for everyone. And conversely, what would be some of the worst things we could do? If you were going to wake up tomorrow morning and go, I mean, other than a weird tweet at 3 a.m., which unfortunately I think we're getting immune to, you wake up tomorrow and there's a policy implemented, you go, oh my God, that's the worst thing that could happen. You know, what might be in that category? Well, I think anything that is a knee-jerk reaction that is not thoughtful. And I think sometimes we are um, uh, a country that reacts to the last crisis without really thinking through carefully all of the history behind it and how it might Im impact things on the future. So um, I think we've become victims of, uh, of headlines and sound bites without an appreciation for nuance. And so I think anything that we have to do has to appreciate nuance. But I, I think an even greater threat, Rich, is ignoring this moment. I mean, so often I have seen either a police shooting or a school shooting. And in the moment I have thought, well, finally, at last, you know, Sandy Hook with kindergartners or first graders, um, at last we have the moment where everybody realizes the horror of the situation and is ready to come together to make meaningful change. Uh, and then time goes by and we let the moment slip and we move on to the next shiny object and we have not made um, reform. So I, I think we need um, to be vigilant uh, to sticking with this issue in this moment. And I think that's why we're seeing so many protests and so much anger and violence um, in our, our cities because people have had enough that how many of these are we going to have to live through before we realize it's time to do something. And so I think the biggest mistake we could make is ignoring the opportunity to make meaningful change. Barb, that is the reason I started the Common Bridge. It was reaction to one of the school shootings. And I'm sad to say it was one of them, that, there, yeah. that there's more. And I was tired of people yelling at each other and then no change being made. And yeah. so I have decided to exit my uh, business career and focus on can we find good policies that make sense? And I actually crafted a, a gun policy. It's on my uh, website. I believe it was the second or third podcast that we did. And trying to appeal to people that are on the political extremes to say, you know, you're not going to get 100% of what you want. And, you know, you, and also you're not going to take the person from the other side of the political extreme and convince them to come all the way over. But is this policy change better than where we are today? And my 
view is that the political parties have become very adept at attacking each other, um, very adept at um, wielding power to sustain their parties, but not very good at addressing the issues of the day. And it's fueled by a 24-hour news cycle that has a business model of clicks and eyeballs and shares. And so things are written not to educate, not to discuss, but to inflame and to threaten because you, you can't ignore a threat. And that's what I'm trying to do here in a small way with the common bridge is can we find ways to, you know, we can all agree we want our people to feel safe and comfortable interacting with the police department at all levels, whether you're an assistant to the president of the United States, or you're a, you know, a person that just bought yourself a pack of cigarettes. It doesn't matter, but we all should have equal protection under the law. We should allow that, you know, people can feel secure in their businesses, in their homes, that they're not going to be ransacked or burned. And how do we get to a, a society that has the policies in place where people feel like they're being treated fairly, where we can dial down the inflammatory rhetoric that we get from those people that are elected to serve? And how do we get a responsible news media that can actually go through an editing process, make sure that they're factual, and and maybe change their business model to to not threaten. Um, I know that's a tall order, but your appearance on the podcast Common Bridge, uh, where we are gaining an audience, I hope will be a step in that direction. And I, I can't thank you enough for being on with us today. Yeah, thanks very much for having me, Rich. You know, I am always eager to uh, engage in conversations where we can take a deeper dive and um, and really talk through issues. So often. Um, we are at a superficial level where we don't get to get into nuance. And so I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, I, I thank you so much, Barb. And this has been The Common Bridge with Rich Helpy and our special guest, Barb McQuaid. You have been listening to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge podcast, recording and post-production provided by Stunt3 Multimedia. All rights are reserved by Richard Helpy. For more information, visit richardhelpy.com.